This morning, we're going to be uh, continuing our sermon series on foundations of faith, where we've been studying just the importance of regular spiritual habits, okay? So all, hopefully during the last few weeks, you've been challenged to, you know, increase the, 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 the fervency of your spiritual disciplines, reading the Bible, praying, serving others, coming to worship with a heart that's prepared. Um, and this morning, we're going to be looking at the spiritual habit of stewardship. So our goal in all of this series has been for us to live as Jesus lived, to engage in the same spiritual habits that we see in the life of our Lord, remembering that Jesus is our example, he is our master, and we are his followers and disciples. And that means we should desire to live as Jesus lived in relationship to the Father, in a living, vibrant relationship with his father, but also living a life of joy and love and service to those around us. So that is the point. Now this morning we're going to be looking at stewardship. And so typically once a year I do a sermon on stewardship in November. And because I'm in this series, I'm backing it up early a month. And so this will be our stewardship emphasis day um, as we look at stewardship. Now this is the definition I've used for five years now that I've been your pastor, as we look at this, this is what stewardship means. All right, we get this from, from the scriptures, especially Psalm 24, but this is it. Utilizing and managing all of God's provided resources for His glory and the benefit of creation. That's what it means to be a steward in the biblical sense, that God has given us all that we have, and we are stewards of it, we are not owners. And so, therefore, we are to use it for God's purposes and for the good of creation. No one can say that we're good stewards if we are actually destructive to everything around us and destroying and destroying it. So, biblical stewardship should follow. It should follow from biblical stewardship that all of us should be for clean water, clean air, for things like that, um, in a way that pleases and honors the Lord. So, that's our goal. Now, as stewards... We are called to utilize all that we have. That means managing our time, our talents, our gifts and skills, our treasures. That would be our money and possessions. We're to use our minds, souls, and emotions. We're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and steward those things. We're to steward our tongues and the words we say and the words we don't say. We're to steward our bodies and our health. Our relationships, our job, even our fun, our recreation. God gave us a day of rest so that we could steward it. Our marriages are to be stewarded and our ministries, our families are one of the greatest stewardships that we have. Our community in which we live and even the civilization in which we find ourselves. So, now here is the distinction as believers that we have to know and understand. Here is the distinction when we talk about being stewards, okay? Owners have rights. Okay? Owners have rights. It's even written into our legal code. Owners have rights. And I'm not opposed to that. But stewards have responsibilities. And so, God has called us to be stewards. We have responsibilities before God. Now, C.S. Lewis, in Mere Christianity, he says this about being a steward. He says, every faculty you have, your power of thinking or of moving your limbs from moment to moment is given you by God. If you devoted every moment of your whole life exclusively to God's service, you could not give Him anything that was not, in a sense, His already. 
Every heartbeat, every thought, every moment that we are being sustained, we are not owners of this. We are stewards. Okay, and we do this because Jesus is our example. Okay? We see Jesus demonstrating a life that absolutely fulfills the two greatest commandments of the Scriptures. The first is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Jesus did this. He stewarded all of his faculties towards this great end. And the second great commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus did this. And you cannot help but read through the, the Gospels and see that Jesus used all that he had for the good of others. Especially in regard to their eternal well-being. Not just their physical needs, but their eternal needs. Jesus is our example of what it means to be a steward. And we must take this discipline seriously in our lives. So I want to look, and I don't have time to preach all my sermon today. So let's look at several key items from the life of Jesus in regards to us being stewards. Okay, So I'm just going to pick and choose. That's why this will be a different kind of sermon. We're going to skip around a little bit. Um, because I want to focus on four items that are readily evident in the life of Jesus concerning stewardship. And so Jesus modeled it and he taught about it. So I want to give you four truths and we'll look at several scriptures as we go through. Okay, So here are the four, four areas of Jesus' life where it's abundantly clear that he, he is calling us to stewardship and he is living it and modeling it for us. The first is this. Jesus, you can't help but read through the Gospels to notice that Jesus stewarded his time. He stewarded his time, whether he was praying, and we saw this often, whether he was praying, whether he was studying, whether he was preaching, whether he was eating, whether he was ministering, whether he was walking, whether he was resting, whether he was sleeping, he was stewarding all of his time for the glory of his Father. Jesus lived knowing that his time was God's time. Now, what's interesting is that John's gospel, more than any others, focuses on Jesus' determination to use every minute pointed and aimed specifically at accomplishing the Father's purposes. Let me just give you a sampling from John. In John 7, Jesus says this as, he's, as his family members are confronting him about going to the feast in Jerusalem. And Jesus says this. He says, My time has not yet come. And then he goes on to say, I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not fully come. Jesus fully aware that he is on God's timetable, and he is explicitly telling them, I'm going to do things according to God's time and will. And then in John 8, the very next chapter, as Jesus is teaching in the temple, it's interesting in that story, he actually does go to the feast, just not when his family wanted him to. He goes like the next day, he's like, no, I'm not doing it on your time, I'm going on the time that God has set for me. But then as Jesus is in the temple teaching, and the religious leaders are trying to trap him and arrest him, it says there, it says, John says, no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. It's interesting, John interprets all of that and says, they're not going to lay hands on Jesus until God's purpose and time is fulfilled. And then Matthew adds this. This is as Jesus goes up to, to Passover right before he's arrested and crucified. It says, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And listen to what Jesus says. He says, go into the city to a certain man and say to him this. This is what Jesus wants them to tell this man. 
The teacher says, my time is at hand. Not just fix the upper room for me. Jesus says, you tell him this. My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Jesus knows exactly why he's going to Jerusalem. And then in John 13, back to John, Jesus says this to his disciples. And I actually read this in our, in our sermon a few weeks ago on service. This is how it begins in John 13. It says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world. Everything in Jesus' life is moving towards this moment. So the gospel writers see all of time and history moving in Jesus' life as he sets his face towards Jerusalem to give his life a ransom for sinners. And Jesus stewarded all of his time for this moment. He knew exactly when his time would come, and he lived every day heading towards this day that he would give his life on our behalf. And I would say here, for us, in the same way, Jesus is our example, we must live each day in light of the day that we will stand before him. We must steward our time. Why? Because it is limited. You cannot add a single day or hour to your life. We must do it our time. Why? Because it is short and it is passing quickly. For those of in the room that are, that are 70, 80, even 90 years old, if we were to ask any of you in this moment, I'd say, how long is life? You'd say, it is a vapor. Just yesterday, I was walking the halls of my high school, and now I have 10 great-grandchildren. Life goes by just like that. We must steward our time. Why? Because you cannot get any of it back once it's spent. None of us can do a thing about yesterday. There's not a thing you can do about it. We, we can't get any moment of it back. And why must we steward our time? Because it is uncertain. None of you know, even though we might make plans, and we might have great grand schemes, and we might have all of this marked out, and cancer may visit your home tomorrow. A car accident can visit your home by the end of this day. Time is uncertain. You must steward what you have. We must steward it because we will give an account before him one day. Psalm 90 verse 12 says, teach us to number our days rightly that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And Jesus even warns those about being ready to stand before him. He says this in Mark chapter 13. He says, concerning the day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And he says, you don't know when I'm coming back. He says, so, be on guard, keep awake. You do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey. He leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, commands the doorkeeper to stay awake, and he says, therefore, stay awake. You do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. So what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Jesus says you better steward your time because we do not know. And we only, though we only have a few short hours to win our battles, we have all of eternity to enjoy them. Make sure you steward your time like Jesus. Second, Jesus also, we see in his life that he stewarded his responsibilities as a Jewish citizen. We see this in the life of Jesus. Jesus lived as a Jewish citizen under Roman rule. The Jews had been conquered by Rome, and because of this, this created incredible tension 
among the Jews. There was always conflict over whether or not they should submit to Roman rule, pay their taxes, or whether they should have an insurrection. And throughout their history, there was several different eras where both of those things were happening. Now, there was no question from the Romans about this. You were going to do what you're told. You're going to pay your taxes, you're going to submit to the Roman authorities, and you're going to do your job as a citizen. And that's what happened. And so this question about, about, about the Jewish obligations to Rome comes up in Matthew 22. So here's where I'll ask you to turn in your Bibles. Turn to Matthew 22, because I want you to read this with me. Matthew 22, verses 15 to 22, okay? Matthew 22, verses 15 to 22. This is Jesus having an exchange with the Pharisees. Matthew 22, verses 15 to 22. If you're there, say amen. If you're not there, say hold on. If you don't know what to say, say go Vols. Oh, there are a few of you. Okay. All right, so here's what, here's what it says in Matthew 22. Pay attention to here about this conflict about being a, 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 citizen, a Jewish citizen under Roman rule. It says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Jesus and his words, and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. That's important because the Herodians... Uh, are the Jewish, are part of the, are uh, those that support Herod as king, and they support the, they basically are puppets of Rome, okay? And saying, teacher, we know that you are true, and teach the way of God truthfully. That's a lot of kind words. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, so Jesus knows what's going on, he said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Okay, you're, you're hypocrites. Now, this is why they're hypocrites. Look what he says. Show me the coin for the tax. So they brought him a denarius. So it's a Roman coin that has a picture of Caesar on it. So they, Jesus tells them to pull the very coin out of their pocket regarding this tax. Okay? And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? Whose picture's on the coin? He says, Caesar's. He said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. The thing, and, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Now, here's the issue. They're seeking to trap Jesus with this issue and make him choose one of two things. He will either, they, he will, he will either choose Rome... And that'll please the Herodians there, but that'll, that, then Jesus might risk losing favor with all of the crowds, especially the zealots and others who despise Roman rule, like the Pharisees. Or, if Jesus says, let's don't pay the tax, then he risks being arrested as an insurrectionist, right? He's leading a rebellion against Rome. So no matter what Jesus does, he's going to be in trouble. But what does Jesus do? He does neither. He does neither. He makes them produce the very coin used to pay the tax, proving that no matter what these people say, they at least acknowledge Rome's rule enough to use their currency. The point is, Jesus is like, if you didn't believe you should pay taxes to Rome, why do you have their quarter in your pocket? You're obviously using their money. You obviously are not going to rebel against that. So Jesus calls them hypocrites. So Jesus then tells them, give to Caesar what has his image on it, and give to God what bears his image. And that is the exact principle of stewardship. What that means is, all of who I am belongs to God. I can give all of who I am to God and still honor my obligations as a citizen. Now, 
this, because this is the point. I can give all of it to God, pay my taxes to Rome, because God has sovereignly placed me in this situation under Rome's rule. And this is one of those issues, by the way, that set Christianity distinctly apart from their Jewish counterparts in their relationship with governments throughout the world. Christians, from this very time forward, have seen government as an institution of God for the good of its people. So we don't rebel against that, we steward it. We steward it. Romans 13 says this. Paul, who's arrested by Rome, sitting in a Roman prison, he writes words like this. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you'll receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Now I could give 50 caveats about good government and bad government and all of that. But at the end of it all, Jesus is an example of being a steward to his responsibilities as a Jewish citizen under Roman rule. Pay the taxes. Give Caesar what belongs to him. And you give God what belongs to him. Okay? Now, the Bible emphasizes that. Now, here it is. Our earthly citizenship is a stewardship before God. So be a productive citizen. Be a participating citizen. But do it all while remembering that your ultimate citizenship is in heaven before Jesus. Every government around us is temporary. But our citizenship in heaven is eternal. And Christians, therefore, should steward their citizenship for the greater good of our society as salt and light as Jesus commanded. So Jesus stewarded his obligations, and we must as well. Third, Jesus also stewarded his religious obligations. Not only his citizenship in general out in public, but his religious obligations. So whether this was Jesus attending his local synagogue and participating regularly in their services, or traveling to Jerusalem for the Passover and for the Jewish yearly feast, Jesus stewarded all of the obligations that God had instituted for his people. Jesus also paid the temple tax that was part of the, the upkeep that was required throughout all of Israel. So go to Matthew 17. So if you've been in Matthew, now flip back just a few pages to Matthew 17. This is the last one we'll flip to. Because this is also a very interesting thing about stewardship. Matthew, Matthew chapter 17, okay? Matthew 17, all right? Verses 24 through 27. Again, Jesus has a run in with those who really care about taxes. All right? Matthew 17, verse 24 says this. When they came to Capernaum, this is Jesus and the disciples, when they're back in Galilee, right on the Sea of Galilee. It says, when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? So they're collecting the temple tax that has to go for the upkeep of the temple in Jerusalem. 
He says, does your, t- does your teacher not pay the tax? And, and Peter said, yes. All right, there's Peter always getting ahead of himself. Peter just assumes that Jesus pays the tax. All right. And when he came, when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first. So Jesus knows Peter's coming. Peter doesn't even have a chance to say, hey, Jesus, I obligated you for the two, for the two drachma temple tax. I hope you pay it. I told him you did. Um, and he says, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? So who do the kings of the earth tax? Who do they tax? From their sons or from others? And when he had said, then Peter answered, from others. So Peter's smart. Peter goes, well, if I was king, I wouldn't tax my own sons. I'd tax everybody else. So that's what Peter says. So Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. So if, I, if you're the son of the king, you don't have to pay the taxes. Everybody else pays you the taxes. Okay. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. So Peter's a fisherman. Go throw a fish. Go throw a line in. You'll catch a fish. It'll have what we need to pay your tax and mine, Peter. I'll pay your taxes too. Now, if I was Peter, I would have caught lots of fish that day, hoping that there would be more fish that decided to eat gold coins or something. But this is it, right? Jesus paid the tax even though what? What's Jesus' point? Jesus is like, I own everything. I'm the king of all the earth. I own it all. But what does Jesus do? He pays the tax anyway. That's his point to Peter. Jesus did this as an example. Jesus also tithed as a matter of obedience to God's Old Testament commands. Jesus also tithed. All the Jews were commanded to tithe a tenth of all that they had. And as an example, Jesus did that. He even chides, by the way, the Pharisees for not fulfilling that requirement. Listen to what he says. If you're there, back in Matthew 23, you don't have to turn there. I'll just read to you one thing. Or he confronts the Pharisees over their commitment to tithing. They do commit to tithe, but that was at the expense of other commands of being merciful. He says this. He says, Woe to you, you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, which was part of all that they had, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. He says, These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So Jesus chides them that though they tithe, they're not fulfilling the rest of the commands. They're not stewarding the rest of God's commands. And so one commentator says this. And so here's what, here's, here's, here's a commentary on this. He says, a tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord and it is holy to the Lord, reads Leviticus 27.30. It may come as something of a surprise, but there are more remarks in the Old Testament about tithing than there are about the afterlife. Why is it that a tithe of everything is required by God, even spices and condiments like dill, mint, and cumin? The answer is simple, because it is a reminder to God's people that everything belongs to God. It's not a matter of parceling things out between God's portion and our portion, God's property and our property. It all belongs to God. And the tithing of the very first fruits of all the crops and other things is a constant reminder of this fact. Jesus stewarded all of his... Um, all of his religious obligations, whether that was the temple tax or whether that was tithing of what he had. Jesus as a steward, as our example. 
And then fourth and finally, notice that Jesus also stewarded his ministry. He stewarded his calling and his ministry. Now I could read, for me to explain this one, I would have to just say, go home and read the four Gospels today. Go home and read the four Gospels today. Jesus knew that everything in his life, in his calling, and in his ministry was a fulfillment of the Father's plans. From the very first time he picked up the scroll at the synagogue in Capernaum and read from Isaiah and said, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your very presence. All the way to the end where Jesus says, I only do the things that please my Father. Where Jesus says, I have accomplished all that the Father has given me to do. Everything in Jesus' life and ministry. Jesus lived every day. He had a mission to fulfill each day. So think about it this way. This is a summary. Every word Jesus spoke was a stewardship. They were the Father's words. He says this all throughout John. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not speaking of my own accord. I'm speaking what the Father gave me to speak. Every, every gift he used was for the good of others. Jesus says, all of the works and miracles I do, that is the Father working through me. It's the Father's purposes. Every miracle and act of compassion was the Father's heart shining through him. Even every moment of temptation and suffering. Every moment of temptation and suffering, it was for the Father's glory and for our salvation. Jesus stewarded his life, his calling, and his ministry, and we are called to no less. Listen, as a church, God has given us a mission to steward. As, as individual believers, God has given us the gospel and his spirit to make disciples among all peoples, beginning in our homes and in Carroll County to the ends of the earth. We have, as we have just as much a mission and a calling to steward as anyone else. And any church that loses sight of their mission and their purpose loses all rights to call themselves a New Testament church. Jesus commissioned his followers to go into all the world and to make disciples. And that's, that's why we're still here. We're not, the, we're not the last disciples. We're not the first disciples, and we won't be the last. That so long as God, by his grace, allows this church to exist here in Carroll County, the mission does not change. It is to carry the gospel to our communities and families, to the ends of the earth. And that leads me to my conclusion that everything Jesus, all of Jesus, this is just a recapitulation of the sermon in a nutshell. Jesus stewarded all he had for the glory of God. All that he had for the glory of his Father and for the good of others. Jesus says in John 17, it says, When Jesus had spoken, up, spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. So as Jesus' disciples in this room, as we think about being as the spiritual discipline of stewardship, a steward recognizes that everything we have belongs to God. So I just want to ask you, do you recognize that in your own life? Everything you have belongs to God. There is not a single thing you will touch, taste, handle, have, own, look at that does not first belong to Jesus. And that means we don't hold it tight-fisted this way. That means we're willing to open it up and say, Father, this is yours. Use it as you please. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Everything I have, my silver, my gold, my time, my talents, my treasures. And so a, stu a, stu a steward recognizes everything, everything we have belongs to God. A steward recognizes that everything we have is to be used for God's glory and purposes. 
That it's not just take what I have and use it. It's Jesus, use it as you see fit for your purposes. I want this to, I want this to demonstrate that you are my treasure. That you are everything to me. And finally, a steward recognizes that we must give an account. That's what it means to be a steward. We just manage. We manage because ultimately we're going to place this back into the hands of the owner. And so we have to recognize that we will give an account one day. And this requires daily discipline. It is a daily commitment to walk after Jesus. Following in his footsteps. Following in his example. It is a daily dying to my own desires. And seeking to align my will with the will of Jesus. It's a daily taking up of my cross and yielding to the Holy Spirit. And I just want to say in summary, this is the disciple's life. This is what we are called to. This is who we are. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, it is required of stewards. If you're a steward, raise your hand. That's everybody in this room. Listen to what Paul says. It is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Jesus doesn't expect us to be successful. That's in God's hands and in God's timing. I don't have to be really successful. God's, de- God's definition of success looks wildly different than the world. I could preach 20 sermons on that. You know what success looked like for Isaiah? Everywhere you go and preach, they're going to hate you and try to stone you. You know what success, that's, that's what success looked like for him. Elijah, everybody's going to hate you, bro. But we're required to be faithful. That means we walk closely after Jesus, honoring him. This morning, I'm going to pray for us. We're going to have a time of invitation, and it's very simple. Maybe today you just, need to, you just need to pray, and you just need to get alone with Jesus where you are and say, Jesus, I just want to recommit that to you and say that my life is yours. My life is in your hands. I'm not going to try to grab it back and take my life off the altar. It's going to be a living sacrifice. Or maybe you're here today, and you need a church home, and we, um, we're, we're not a perfect church. We never will be, but we're a church that's going to try to steward all that God has given us and leverage it for his kingdom. Or maybe you're here and you don't know Jesus. And what you need to know ultimately is that because of your sin, you're separated from God. And Jesus came on a mission to rescue and redeem broken sinners just like you. He's come to offer forgiveness and eternal life in His name for those that repent of their sins. That means let go of their sins. Push those to the side and say, Jesus, I want you. I bow my knee in repentance before you, and ask you to forgive me and be my Lord, and I'm going to follow you as a disciple. It's the greatest decision any person could ever make, is to to come to Christ by faith and relinquish all of their rights, all of their future, everything they have, and lay it down at the feet of Jesus. Because everything this world has is nothing compared to having Him. And if that's you this morning, we invite you to make that decision to follow Jesus. Would you pray with me, Father? This morning we ask that you would continue to speak to us from your word. And Father, we ask that we would walk as Jesus walked. That we would think as Jesus thought. That we would love as Jesus loved. That we would serve as Jesus served. And we would steward as Jesus stewarded. And Father, everything that we have belongs to you. And we lay it in your hands and we say, Father, use us as you see fit for your glory and your purposes. And Lord, may it be leveraged for your kingdom. And for the sake and name of Jesus among the nations, we pray this in Christ's name.